Good evening, friends. I'll do a quick check on the volume of the uh, PA. Is it okay? Such a beautiful day today. Very beautiful evening just now. Don't know how you're feeling, but I hope you got out into that beauty a little bit. So one announcement before I... Uh, begin. Uh, You may, some of you have noticed, or you may notice when you go out of the hall this evening, that some lists for the uh, practice discussions that are scheduled for tomorrow have been posted. You'll want to check those tonight or tomorrow morning, and uh, we'll we'll say more about them in the morning. But that will be for half of you. So half of you will be seen tomorrow and the uh, second half the following day. So if your name's not up there, it should be on uh, Saturday. And if by some chance your name does not show up either tomorrow or Saturday, let someone in the front office know. It's been almost 2,600 years ago now since the Buddha lived uh, and taught on the uh, plains of northern India. And over that time, the story of of the Buddha's life has taken on a kind of uh, almost mythical quality, or like a fable. And I don't know how often... Any of us think about the, the Buddha as a, as a person. You know, there's statues like this one up here, which I have a particular close relationship to because of leading a, a, a ritual to kind of bless it and welcome it and uh, consecrate it, in a sense, a very traditional um, ritual uh, well, for, during the first retreat uh, after the pandemic that we had in the fall of uh, 21, must be. And this statue was donated during the time that IMS was closed, uh, closed to um, in-person retreats. And so I, I have a, a kind of maybe a little more of a heart connection to this statue than, than some, but, but it is very stylized and generic, and, and there's not really a direct connection to a real person there. It is, it's this symbolic representation. And it can be easy to lose touch with the fact that the, the Buddha was a person who was born and lived in, in northern India that many years ago, passed away there, undertook this spiritual journey, followed a path of practice, and realized a profound, deep kind of peace and freedom through that, practiced through his own efforts, and then taught for many years after that and pointed to the realization that he had as something possible for all of us. 
for any one of us. And famously he said, if it were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. I wouldn't ask you to try, but since it is, then I do ask you to try and I offer these teachings. But there are some details from the life story of the Buddha, and and they're interesting, and many of them are supported by you know, historical research and archaeology. And so I think we're safe in accepting that there is a basis in truth when we hear about the Buddha's life story. And even if we just relate it to it as a story, there are some useful teachings there. I've had the occasion to do pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy sites on more than one occasion. The first time I went was just about exactly 30 years ago now. And at that time I had read a book called Old Path, White Clouds. Have any of you read it? By Thich Nhat Hanh. It's a, uh, his, his version of the, the life story of the Buddha. Um, it's quite beautiful. And at that time I, I really enjoyed reading it and I was... It was very fresh in my mind. And, and when I began my, my pilgrimage that year, I began in uh, what is now the uh, city in, in Bihar, Rajgir. At that time, it was the time of the Buddha. It was called Rajagaha. And I went there first, and that was the capital city of the kingdom of Magadha. And the king who was... Ruling there at the time of the Buddha was named King Bimbisara. And uh, I had it in mind that I was going to walk overland from there to Bodhgaya, which is not that far, but it would have taken a few days probably. And uh, I had this romantic notion that I would arrive in Bodhgaya on foot, having traversed that that uh, distance. But I, I was made aware that at that time, and I don't know what it's like now, probably hasn't gotten any, any much better, that, that that area was famous for its highway robbers, dacoits, <laughs> and uh, that I'd be lucky to survive such a journey, <laughs> at least intact. In and some of you may have read an account by a teacher, Ajahn Suchito, about his uh, pilgrimage. Yeah, I think there's two books. The first one was called Rude Awakenings. Anybody read that? Uh, he, he had quite an adventure in that very area there where, um, you know, at one point his life was threatened by robbers. Um, and so I did not walk. But at that time and still now, the ancient walls of that city dating from at least the time of the Buddha, probably quite a long time before then, they're still visible there. And, and these places that are mentioned in the texts, the Squirrel Sanctuary, that's a beautiful garden grove area. And um, all these places are, are, that are mentioned in the texts around that area are, are there. I mean, they're, they're real places. It was so inspiring for me to go and walk around that area. And I used to, my, my, my 
morning ritual there. I was staying in the city at the um, Burmese Vihara and uh, and outside the city a ways there's the uh, Gritakuta Hill. It's the uh, called the Vulture Peak, and it's mentioned in many of the discourses. The Buddha taught there a lot, and uh, near the summit there of that hill, there's the a, a brick and stone um, foundation that is said to have been the site of a, a meditation hut that the Buddha used there. And um, I would get up early in the dark and walk out of town to get to that place in time for the sunrise. That was my, I did it once and then I said, I'm going to do it every morning. It was scary for me because I'd been told about, you know, robbers and and it was, you know, I felt vulnerable, but I just wanted to do it so much that I, I just faced my fears daily for the time I was there, a couple of weeks, I think. And uh, every morning I would come to the top and I would, and, and the sun would just be about to rise and there was always a monk uh, sitting there in meditation on this stone platform that was the, the Buddha's kuti was maybe there, at least that's the story. And I don't know, sometimes I wondered if he'd been sitting there all night, I don't know, but he was always there before me. And we would sit in meditation together at least in my mind, we were together. <laughs> I don't know if you even noticed I was there. And the sun would rise and there was this timeless feeling. It just felt like, like the Buddha might just have gotten up from there. It felt so um, timeless that the early morning uh, light and sitting in this place that... Um, where the Buddha walked and taught and where pilgrims have been going for, for centuries since that time. And it's said that you know, one of his chief disciples, the Venerable Sariputta, is said to have become fully enlightened there, just a little bit below the summit. There's a, have you, any of you been there? Yeah, yeah. You know where the, the Boar's Cave is? Just a little down off the top. Uh, there's a small cave area, and it's said that at one time the Buddha was giving a discourse on uh, mindfulness of Vedana, of feeling tone, and to uh, a wandering ascetic whose name was Diganaka, and that who happened to be Venerable Sariputta's nephew. And Sariputta was standing behind the Buddha, fanning him with I picture with a palm leaf, while he while he spoke. And he said that he listened to the discourse as though sharing food prepared for another. I love that image and feeling of that, that it was prepared for someone else, but there was enough that he could share that. And he said this, it was to another that the Blessed One was teaching the Dhamma. And to the Dhamma I listened intently for my own good and not in vain, for freed from all defilements, I gained release. You know, we, we often, we, we maybe don't think, maybe some of us do think of, of a moment of realization, maybe happening in, in deep meditation or something. But 
In this case, he was listening to the Buddha talk. And that is said to have happened for many people. And I used to think that was just, you know, they put that in later for his good PR for the Buddha, you know. You listen to him, you got enlightened. <laughs> but I've had my own kinds of experiences listening to Dhamma, um, especially when I was living as a, as a bhikkhu. I remember times where I had such powerful experiences listening to uh, Saira Upandita, for example, speak and give teachings. And it was so clear and obvious to me that, that um, one could realize uh, awakening while listening to someone teach. I, I love this image of Sariputta fanning the Buddha gently, listening for his own good, he said, sharing this good dhamma-like food that was prepared for another, and then having this uh, final awakening moment there in that place. And the Buddha, is said, was born into the Sakyan clan. He was a Sakya. His father was named Sudadana. His mother, whose name was Maya, died uh, about a week after he was born, shortly after his birth. And so he was raised by her sister, Pajapati. And the name Siddhartha, or Siddhartha is more Sanskrit. We're more familiar with that uh, pronunciation means uh, one who accomplishes their goal. He was given that name. And was the king, Suddhodana, was told by a, uh, a sage, a visionary, that, that the, his son, the prince Siddhartha, Siddhartha, would grow up to be either a great ruler or a, a great spiritual seeker and teacher. And so the king had his clear idea of which one of those he wanted to have happen. And so he raised his son in, in very, um, you know, relative luxury for that time at least and kept him from seeing anything unpleasant or anything that might turn his mind towards renunciation and the spiritual life, towards leaving that, seeking something else. And he gave you know, the best food and luxurious uh, clothing and all kinds of entertainments and beautiful things to be distracted. And in the Buddha's own words, he said, I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. Lotus pools were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit and enjoyment. Blue lilies flowering in one white in another, and red lilies in the third. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares, which was then and now known to be the the best, and wore no cloth that was not woven from Benares silk. My turban, tunic, lower garments were all made of this cloth, and a white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. He said that he had three houses, sometimes described as palaces, but three places, one for each season of the year, for the hot season, the rainy season, the cool season, given the best education, training in all things that were um, befitting for the heir to the throne, 
Uh, he was married probably a, as a child. Wife was found. It wasn't asked about this. It just happened one day. <laughs> wasn't given any choice, I'm sure. That was the tradition. And at a point in his life, as he grew to be a young man, he experienced some something that that some have called a, have referred to as the call a call to destiny call to awakening and in the kind of we could say archetypal story or or maybe almost mythical story this came in the form of what are called the four heavenly messengers where he he went out of the palace on four occasions and saw an old person which he apparently had never seen a sick person again that was new a corpse and then a, a wandering spiritual seeker a sadhu in his own words he said they were thoughts that occurred to him that it's a much longer i'm shortening this but basically you know if i'm just going to get old sick and die what's What's the point? This kind of existential dilemma. Is there, what's the point to life if this is the trajectory of it towards aging, sickness, and death? And then seeing this spiritual seeker who had let go of, of worldly things and seemed to be contented with that. And it, it turned his mind in this other um, direction and, and led to his decision to leave. He, he got out of there. And, and uh, all of the conventional offerings for happiness that had been given. Zodwar, he said, Now I, before awakening, while I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, I reflected thus, confined as the household life, a path of dust, going forth to homelessness is wide open. It's not easy living in a house to lead the religious life completely fulfilled and purified and polished as mother of pearl. Suppose I were to shave off my hair and beard, clothe myself in ochre robes, and go forth from home into homelessness. And so he made this decision, and there was this kind of external change and and renunciation manifesting in this, you know, radical shift of lifestyle, leaving behind this easy life and all of the pleasures there, because he saw it, it wasn't going to be easy for him to, to try to understand what life is about, to live the life of a spiritual seeker in that, in that place and all of the distractions there. And sometimes it may feel necessary to us to make some kind of change in the external form and look of our lives when we enter seriously upon a spiritual path. That was the case for me. It was my choice. It was also, to some extent, maybe thrust upon me a bit. I, I had been living in San Francisco and working, and I went to my first meditation retreat was for 10 days and it was also the first time I'd done any meditation at all and it came at a time in my life that 
that I could make big changes. I had no obligations or responsibilities and I had just closed down a, a business that I had with some friends and and, th- and ended recently a relationship. So I had, I had nothing to tie me down. And that first retreat was uh, transformative for me. And I, I heard about this place there. It was out in California in the desert there. And uh, one of the teachers was uh, my dear friend, Carol Wilson. And she talked about this three-month retreat, and I, I wanted to do that. And so I, I went back and asked my, my roommate if I could sublet my part of our... We lived in this cool old fire station in San Francisco. This was back in the 80s, and, and I was very cool then. It's been a tragic decline <laughs> over the years since, and my coolness factor may not be so apparent to you. But at that time, you would have been able to tell. <laughs> but my, my roommate, my housemate said... You know, no, you can't do that. It was kind of more her place than mine. She said, if you're leaving, you're leaving. <laughs> See you later. You can't sublet. So I, you know, it was, I loved that place. <laughs> and I knew I was giving up a bit of my coolness by moving, but um, there was no question in my mind. I'm, I'm, le- I'm going. I'm, this is, I'm, I've got to do this thing. So I came out here shortly after that, and I, I had to sit another retreat to qualify to go to the three-month retreat. But, but I did sit it that fall. So within six months of ever doing any formal meditation, I was sitting where you are now. And I'd love to be sitting with you. It's good up here, but it's better where you are. If anyone wants to trade, let me know. Although I have to consult with my colleagues. <laughs> I can't just do it. So we may decide that that's uh, something like that. For me, there was that shift happened, and that led me into most of 25 years of no fixed address Dharma bum life, <laughs> including time living in as an ordained uh, Bhikkhu in Asia and long pilgrimages in India and um, all kinds of things. Living here, working here on staff. But there's an internal renunciation that's really at the heart of this journey and this, this path leading to liberation, to, to freedom. And that's much more important than than any kind of external change. It's an internal renunciation. But the, that, that word renunciation, how does that land for you in your mind when I say it? Yippee? <laughs> does it have a positive feeling? It, it's not positive in the culture the connotation of that. And this was true at the time of the Buddha. There was a, 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 a householder named Tapusa who lived at the time of the Buddha. And he was, he was um, he must have been a, a student, a disciple of the Buddha's in some way. He was interested in it at least. And he went to see uh, 
the, the Buddha's attendant Ananda one day, and he said, Venerable Ananda, sir, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. <laughs> that's the way it is, ain't it? At least we're certainly told that's the best thing. Tabusa said, for us, indulging in sensuality, delighting, enjoying, rejoicing in it, this renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off for us, to us. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people, this issue of renunciation. Does, does that feeling come into your heart or mind at all when you hear the word or realize I'm going to talk about renunciation? Does your heart leap up? Who's got a leaping heart out there? There's one, two, a few of you, <laughs> more. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was reminded sometime recently about a cartoon. I used to see it in the paper. I never really liked it that much, but it was called Hagar the Horrible. And Hagar was this kind of scruffy, red-bearded Viking kind of character whose main occupation for making a living was was sacking and looting, you know, was a caricature. Wasn't very good at it. And there's this one cartoon that that I remember someone showing me once where, where... it's kind of a thing that is a recurring theme in some car, comic strips. So he's laboring up this mountain. He's walking up this mountain. And at the, in the first frame, the second frame, there's a, a, the obvious wise sage, long white beard, long flowing white hair, and white garments. And he's sitting up there, and, and Hagar says, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And the sage in the next frame says, simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. And Hagar's kind of, and he says, is there anyone else up here I can talk to? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is our, our response inside sometimes when we hear renunciation and leaping up and happiness and they don't seem to, how does that one lead to the other? You know, maybe we, we asked the wrong person. <laughs> And we think that renunciation means there's no longer any possibility to enjoy anything and that life is this is heading in the direction of this gray, bland dullness, devoid of anything pleasant. Renunciation is like this self-inflicted punishment that it's life-denying or some kind of repression or the word renunciation as though it's a, a synonym for deprivation or uh, you know pain maybe and even if if there's like Tapusa you know he said it seems you know he's willing to admit maybe there's something useful there <laughs> something of value but not looking forward to the prospect with feelings of gladness you know maybe we think because it comes up, it must be good, good for us, but our hearts don't leap up. 
you know, bad tasting medicine, and something maybe for, for monks and nuns and people who make that choice. But we're walking the same path and doing the same practices that all who have walked this path for, for nearly that nearly 2,600 years have walked. It's the same path. And if we walk it sincerely and for any distance at all, we will discover that this is a path of renunciation. And that the journey to freedom, to peace, ultimately is this process of learning moment by moment in each moment to let go. The Buddha famously likened his teaching, likened this practice. He said it it was like swimming against a stream, running contrary to the way of the world. And we could say in this context that the way of the world is the way of following the energy of desire, following the wanting mind, carried along by this current, seeking happiness in pursuit of objects and experiences and, and things in which we imagined and are, are heavily conditioned, high, strongly conditioned to, to imagine that we will find happiness, fulfillment. Now, so much in the media is about not only wanting stuff, but finding ways to increase your desire for things, experiences, stuff. You know, to, to want to be, to have the most possible wanting is, is kind of highly, highly elevated as the way to be. And maybe we don't buy into that, but we can't deny the power of it in in the culture and in our lives, in the mind stream. And so this, this message of renunciation is pointing to a very opposite approach. It's radical relative to the, the, broad, the broader culture. And the pull of desire, the energy of the wanting mind is to be understood and eventually abandoned. Not because it's judged to be bad or evil or wrong. It's not some moral judgment here. It's just seeing that it doesn't lead anywhere and that it actually actually leads to suffering. It doesn't lead. It's, it's an empty promise that it's going to lead to peace, fulfillment, a lasting kind of happiness. The Buddha didn't judge the happiness of enjoying worldly pleasures. He spoke about them very directly in different times. Acknowledge this is part of life, is the enjoyment of, of pleasurable things and goodness in one's life. But he did point to their limitation and to, wait, to the way that that following the energy of the wanting mind and endlessly seeking pleasant experiences, sense pleasures and different experiences and, and stuff doesn't 
doesn't work as a strategy as a strategy for lasting happiness deep contentment peace it's not it's a flawed strategy it doesn't doesn't really do it and at times and it can be a real impediment to the spiritual life this is from uh, ajahn sumedho the way of spiritual life is a movement away from the distraction of attaining or acquiring. It is a relinquishing, a letting go. It simplifies our lives, freeing us from that which is unnecessary. There's no judgment or rejection. It is pure mindfulness developing in the present moment, the only place truth can be found. So, so back to my story of the householder Tapusa. So he goes to Ananda and says, "What's up? You know, we're we're told these are hearts of the young, <laughs> the young monks leap up, but we don't get that." And uh, so Ananda takes Tapusa to see the Buddha. The Buddha says this: "Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisatta, I thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good." But my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. And the thought occurred to me, what is the cause, what is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, doesn't see it as peace? And the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation and doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. So he's, he's talking to Tapusa. He said, yeah, I used to feel like that too. I didn't get it. Tapusa, he said, it seems like a sheer drop-off. I like that image. He was pointing this misunderstanding. It's the energy, the insatiable energy of of wanting, of craving, of desire that is a root cause of suffering. It's, It's not something inherent in the objects of the desires. It's that energy. And turning away from this, because it is insatiable, this energy, it's it's never satisfied for, oh, how long? Just then, and the mind is already looking for the next thing. Turning away from that, this endless pursuit of some pleasure to satisfy our, our passing desires, it's not a sheer drop-off. It's It's actually the key to happiness, to freedom. And the Buddha is offering this chance to make a trade. And the Dhammapada, one of the beautiful collection of these short verse teachings in verse form, if by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. Common sense. Tanisaro Bhikkhu goes by Tan Jeff says he likens it he says it's like trading candy for gold 
He said this, an intelligent sacrifice is any in which you would gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one. In the same way you'd give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, it's like a profitable trade. This analogy is an ancient one in the Buddhist tradition. I'll make a trade. One of the Buddha's disciples was a a bhikkhu named Supiha. I'll make a trade. Aging for the ageless. Burning for the unbound. The highest peace, the unexcelled safety from bondage. I'll make that trade. And most of the time we want to keep the candy and get the gold. Because <laughs> we don't trust it and we, we think, well, I know the candy tastes good, even if we're willing to admit that it's maybe a transient pleasure. We don't trust this, this gold. We can't see. We're told it's gold. Maybe we don't quite believe it. Or we get a little taste, but we're not sure. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, the famous teacher, translator, yogi. Contemplating the dukkha inherent in following desire is one way to incline the mind to renunciation. Another way is to contemplate directly the benefits flowing from renunciation. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace, from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow, but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. I mean, that's a strong statement. Desire ultimately breeding fear and sorrow. Fear of losing the thing, sorrow when it passes away or our our love of it disappears, it's not so shiny, whatever it is. It changes. This idea of renunciation leading us to fearlessness and joy. I mean, who wouldn't make that trade? That's a good trade. But even if we, we say, like my, these words tonight, it sounds good, but it's not easy. And we run up against some strong conditioning in our hearts when we embark upon this path and, and face this, not as an idea, but in the moment, in our experience right now when, you know, desire shows up. And we meet it in its arising. This is a poem from the Terigata from one of the uh, early uh, female monastics named Vadesi, a disciple of the Buddha. This was part of her kind of enlightenment poem. She said, it was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out, as I entered the monastery. Adesi had been some kind of spiritual seeker for for a long time. And you know, we might feel like that sometimes. We've been meditating, you know, really making some sincere effort 
maybe for a long time. And sometimes, you know, it feels like we haven't had any lasting peace, at least. And we work so hard. You know, we come here, we do all that it takes to get to a three-month retreat. We've been thinking about doing one for years, maybe. And we sit down, and, and the mind is racing and raging and caught up in this restless movement between what we want and what we don't want, what we like and don't like, and desire and aversion. But Vadesi's poem had a happy ending. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure and I know the minds of others. I have great magic powers and I have annihilated all the obsessions of mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So it's essential that we see and explore this sense of renunciation, not just on the level of some intellectual, conceptual exploration, but directly feeling into it moment by moment as we walk this path and do this practice. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said, you might recall, he said there are two things to contemplate that are useful. The drawbacks of following desire as a pathway strategy for happiness and the benefits that flow from renunciation. And so we, we feel directly into how the energy of desire, what are the drawbacks of that? If we, because we, we have this chance in this practice and on a retreat like this, it's so great. We have this chance to really get to know it. Just like in its arising, when it shows up, this wanting, we're not going to have to do anything about it. We're going to feel it, get to know it, understand it. And if we start to explore it, we'll see there's a quality of suffering there. You know, the object that of our desire so it so seems so potential seems so great, seems so beautiful. We get so fascinated by that we don't actually feel the energy of the desire. It's it's painful if we feel it, that energy of wanting. There's this quality of suffering and it tells us something is lacking in our lives and there's something we need to be happy, to be complete. This sense of longing, of lack, something missing. Things are not good enough now. We're not good enough. But if we look and see, if we satisfy any one desire, how long before there's another one? How long does that feeling last? It can be such a short time. We can see this over and over in our lives. 
There's a simple example. So I, I like old mechanical watches. Like this one is from 1957. And if you open the back, it's got little gears and a spring and it ticks and it, they're moving around. It's very beautiful as a, as a, it's a little kinetic sculpture. I find them quite beautiful. And I like to, and I, I'm not a watchmaker, but I tinker with them a bit. I can kind of do a few things. And I find them, I like them, right? <laughs> and I have a small collection, and they're not, this is not a high-end watch, right? These are not, we're not talking about expensive watches here. But I have, I have a, I have a few of them. I don't need another watch, but I'll find myself looking in some website, <laughs> looking online. Oh, there's a cool one. And it's just, they're all basically the same. <laughs> you know, or scenes, I don't know if this still happens, but there's been times, you know, there's the newest version of an electronic device that's going to come out and people will line up and and spend the night (laughs) bring a chair and sit on the sidewalk overnight to be the first one in line to go into the store and get it get a new one (laughs) give me a break you know and 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 people cheering when they come out the one who comes out with it got it the first you know like they've accomplished some great deed (laughs) Spending money on a thing. I mean, the demands are endless and they don't satisfy us. And each desire somehow is telling us that this one is going to make it, you know. Then I won't want anything ever again. You know, like children at Christmas or something. And they feel so promising. They look so beautiful. The desire is like a thief and a liar. Desire acts like a thief because it steals from us any chance at contentment right now in this moment. And desire lies to us like a con artist. False promises. Yes, this you just need this thing. And when we follow this relentless feeling, it's like we're, we're just reinforcing this sense of lack and insufficiency. And our contentment then becomes something that's determined by conditions. But the peace and the happiness that the Buddha pointed to is one that doesn't depend on conditions. This is profound, friends. A happiness, a peace, that doesn't depend on the conditions. That's real peace, freedom, happiness. Can you feel you feel that? And some and we've all tasted it maybe in moments where there's happiness and it's not because of the conditions of that moment. It's coming from somewhere else. This is profound, this possibility. Because peace or freedom that's dependent on conditions is so fragile. Conditions are always changing and they are largely out of our control. Ultimately, totally out of, we don't have any direct control. 
Boy, we don't give up trying very easily. And we don't see that, that any sense of relief or peace or contentment that we feel by satisfying a particular desire, it's not from getting the thing, it's because for a little bit, that wanting falls away, the energy of wanting, that falls away. We get a chance here to feel it, and we feel, oh, wow, that, it's this tightening, it's this, I mean, directly, you know, it's like this squeezing on the heart. It hurts. It's dukkha. And so when that falls away for a moment and our heart is released from the grip, that's the, the ease is, is from that, not from having gotten the thing or had the experience. And this, this peace, this freedom can, comes in any moment there's letting go. And it's important that we feel into that and, and acknowledge the reality of it. And it comes from from mindfulness and contemplation and exploration and from insight, again from Bhikkhu Bodhi. The tool the Buddha holds out to the free the mind from desire is understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things that we still cherish, but of changing our perspective on them to realize they are impermanent and insubstantial so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, and investigate it closely with keen attention, desire falls away by itself without the need for struggle. So it's, it's this direct seeing and wisdom that frees the mind. Wisdom wises and it releases. And we can get this taste of the peace that arises from letting go a taste of this ease, this freedom, in a moment of pure mindfulness. And that can come even in the midst of a, of a moment when craving and desire and wanting are strong in, in the mind. If we, if we come right, we get right up next to them, we look at it, feel it, allow it to be there, without resistance, without having to do anything about it. Mindfulness can take us right in that moment to a place of stillness, peace, and ease. And the fire of, the grip of that and the fire of suffering can, at least in that moment, go out or get a taste of it, however short that moment might be. There's this release possible there. We've all felt this, I think, at times, isn't it? I don't know if we'd still be doing this practice if we hadn't. And we, we are with our experience and we let things arise and pass away and we let this current of wanting arise and pass. And the letting go happens on its own and we can rest simply in the truth of the way it is. And this is from the Sutta Nipata. Let go of the drive for pleasure. See how it's peaceful to put aside worldliness. And there's nothing you have to hold on to and nothing you have to push away. So there's this 
this fullness, completeness in a moment of pure mindfulness, pure awareness. And at that time, it doesn't matter what we're aware of. That's so good. Mindfulness doesn't care. And clear seeing, it doesn't matter what's happening. And this is great news because we're not in control of it. But we can understand and, and insight can arise in any moment. Doesn't matter what's going on. There's this fullness, this completeness, nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. Let's just feel into that possibility right now. Just check, check into your heart. Feel the body sitting. Ask the question, is there awareness? Feel the mind that's just present with experience, with the pain in your knee, with the tiredness that may be there, with the the stillness or joy or confusion, whatever's there right now in this moment, just letting that be there. Nothing you have to do about it. You have to fix it or change it. You just know it's like this. Right now it's like this. You can feel it. Simple. And there's nothing to get. And there's nothing to get rid of. And there's nowhere to go and there's no one to be. There's nothing to hold on to and there's nothing to let go of. It's just this right now. It's like this in this moment. And it's full and complete. It doesn't have to be different. for there to be ease, peace, and release. That's possible right now.
Thank you for your kind attention this evening. We have uh, about 35 minutes for uh, walking meditation or going to the bathroom meditation, having a drink meditation, deciding I'm done for the day, going to bed meditation. (laughs) But should you have some energy or find you do come 9 p.m., we will gather again for some chanting. The rule now and henceforward, at least the days that I'm sitting up here doing it, is that you can come just for the chanting. There will not be a bell to end that sitting. So um, please be welcome for that if you'd like to come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.